So I, I'd never been to Texas. To me, Texas was like, you, know, you don't even go anywhere near that strange place. So I said, Mike, what is Austin like? He said, well, Austin, Austin. He said, it's like Vermont with just a lot of heat. <laughs> Welcome, Slavic Connection listeners. My name is Colin, and I am here with Dr. Mark Pomar. He's a senior national security fellow with the Clement Center for National Security here at UT Austin. And we are here to talk all things U.S., Russia, and Ukraine. People like Putin, like Erdogan, fundamentally see democracy as dangerous to their regimes. Democracy is unpredictable. Democracy could bring them down. Democracy exposes corruption. Democracy exposes kleptocracy. All the things that they very much are enmeshed with. You're listening to The Slavic Connection, brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. So I'm, I'm very excited to have you back on the podcast today, Dr. Palmer, because we've had a lot of developments recently in U.S.-Russian relations and some, some news stories have come out in particular indicating shifts in attitudes and norms in this relationship. Um, and I wanted to talk in particular about an article from the Washington Post that was done at George Washington and was a survey of attitudes towards Trump and Putin in the U.S. and Russia, respectively, and how it shows a remarkable affinity for Putin as a strong leader, especially in the United States. I was wondering if you could speak on that. Well, I think what what is interesting, if you just step back for a second and think about the fact that beginning in 2016 with the election of Trump, you have this kind of shift toward a different attitude toward authoritarian leaders wherever they may be, whether they are Orban in Hungary, whether they are Erdogan in Turkey, whether they are Putin in Russia. But Putin in Russia in particular seems to hold a a certain attraction to President Trump. And just apropos of this, recently I saw an article in the New York Times about the number of times that Trump met with Putin, with no note takers or with note takers whose notes were then taken away. So we have no record of those conversations. Uh, it, it, it sort of encourages or invites sort of concern and worry because president, previous presidents, whether Obama or Bush or Clinton or uh, whoever else, were meticulous in having notes being taken of their meetings with leaders so that their staffs could follow up. So you have on one hand, you know, this kind of strange, let's put it this way, a very strange relationship between Trump and Putin. And then a corollary to that, you have surveys being done, and the one you mentioned by uh, Henry Hale of George Washington University, which shows a kind of skewed response to Russians among the American population. As a whole, and I don't remember the numbers exactly, but roughly they found roughly 20% of the American population has a relatively either benign or positive view of Putin. Uh, But once you get into the Republican ranks, it jumps up significantly. And once you look at the red states, it goes up even more by factors of two or three. So something has happened in the electorate on the Republican side that is skewing affinity toward authoritarian leaders, toward people who really, whatever else one might think, uh, stand very much in contrast to the kinds of ideals that both Democrats and Republicans have been voicing for as long as we can remember. And now all of a sudden we have this, this curious affinity and respect for hardcore authoritarian very often racist, very often intolerant leaders. I, I, that's that's fascinating and seems very sudden, too, because it's not that long ago in Mitt Romney's campaign saying that Russia is our greatest geopolitical foe. Do you see any indicators of why this shift might have taken place? Well, a couple of things come to mind. Uh, one is the hold, which I don't understand, but I see it, but I don't necessarily understand it the hold that Trump has over an entire national party. Uh, And we witnessed that this week with the acquittal, with only one 
person standing up, curiously the very person you mentioned, uh, Mitt Romney, standing up uh, in opposition to or uh, to, to Trump. The rest just fell into line. Uh, indeed, falling into line, even though they privately say that they agree with the uh, House impeachment, they see that, our, uh, that uh, there was interference, and yet, for reasons of either fear or some other strange cultish hold, they, they remain. So you have this phenomenon, and I think it's translated into a set of attitudes and views that are really very antithetical to the U.S. Uh, you know, it's one thing to welcome and be friends with an emerging, freer, more democratic Russia. And take the 1990s. They were chaotic. I traveled there frequently. I spent quite a bit of time in, the, in Russia in the 1990s. But they were moving in the direction of the values that all of us have traditionally held as very important. They had a vibrant open press. They had real elections. They had views expressed freely on television, in newspapers. And only with this gradual tightening uh, by Putin over the past 20 years has Russia kind of reverted to a, you know, a very traditional authoritarian uh, government uh, that has no accountability to its people, has no real politics, no opposition, no parliament, no real rule of law because the prosecutor is named by, by the president, he can be fired, and the courts never do anything other than rubber stamp whatever the prosecution presents. To have an American in general, but an American in particular who nominally sees himself or herself as a free and independent democratic sort of rough and tumble American, to side with such an authoritarian leader, I find perplexing to, to, to put it mildly. think that the forces driving American public opinion in favor of an authoritarian regime in Russia are the same forces driving Trump to Putin? Or do you think that these are different covert energies? I would step back and say probably what, and I'm guessing, but what, what, let's say, the Republicans who uh, have a positive feeling toward Trump excuse me, toward Putin, is that he stands against what they perceive as this new liberalism and decadence. Uh, he stands for traditional values. He is against all of this, what Russia's called gay Europa, you know, all of this, uh, you know, strange stuff that is happening. He stands for traditional religions, for... Uh, uh, the role of the of the church in Russian politics, which has become back very strong, uh, standing athwart uh, history and preventing it from going forward in this liberal, this sort of anti-elite, that is probably I'm I'm speculating probably one of the reasons why they are sort of I guess attracted to him because they see that side and only that side, and probably if one were to track. Uh, what the far-right websites and news sources say about Russia, that is probably what it tracks. There is a uh, news entity in Southern California which where reporters said they they were told never to criticize Russia no matter what they were doing. Uh, There's probably Russian money involved. There's probably a certain amount of infiltration on that level. And I think... It, it plays to this idea that these are the leaders who are opposing this, this menacing liberalism that is, is about to engulf them. And by liberalism, they mean everything from social issues to, to uh, you know, political to elitism and so forth. Right. And if there's one thing that being bringing it a little American focused that we learned from the Iowa caucuses this week is that people may have a large vocabulary based in beliefs and ideology, but when it comes down to it, they're really voting on a handful of things and how they understand it. Just watching 
the way people described their candidates was very generic, but it focused on a handful of individual issues. And so maybe there is this overarching narrative of the decadent liberal West that fits with our in, you know, domestic narratives of, of, of coastal elites and stuff mm. and that. I think that fits in. I think that people like Putin, like Erdogan in uh, Turkey, like Orban in Hungary, uh, General Sisi in Egypt. I mean, you can name a number of them come to mind. Fundamentally see democracy and democratic modes of operation as dangerous to their regimes. Democracy is unpredictable. Democracy could bring them down. Democracy exposes corruption. Democracy exposes kleptocracy. All the things that they very much are enmeshed with. So they oppose that with a kind of nationalism and uh, authoritarian rule that will solve all problems. You don't need uh, these uh, talk fests in Dumas and parliaments and congresses. All they do is talk. They don't accomplish anything. We accomplish. We run the country. Uh, and I think that appeals, unfortunately, uh, to a sizable percentage of people all across the world. And the fact that it's appealing to people in the United States, I think we're seeing that right before our very eyes, where, where uh, Congress at, at best is a rubber stamp, and, and that's really all that is expected of it. So with this shift, it feels as though our institutions really are starting to grind down under that weight. Well, we will see when the election comes. I mean, whether or not, I think the election, the 2020 presidential and congressional election, will show a lot in terms of, of what uh, what the United States can, can do. I think there's a certain resilience. I mean, the country's been in worse shape than this. I mean, we've had the Depression, which was in many ways worse. We've had a civil war, which in many ways is worse. So it's not the, the, the be-all and end-all of, of all crises by any means. Uh, I would say, from my perspective, what amazes me is the extent to which the country functions perfectly well when Washington doesn't. People go to work, people produce things, people go to stores, people buy, people do. In other words, we, we run states, take on action. Uh, Trump tries to um, undo uh, environmental legislation, so California steps in and passes its own. Uh, in other words, there's just so much vibrancy to the American political system and enough, if you wish, decentralization, enough sort of opportunities for mayors and governors and states and communities that it's, it's not run in, through Washington, by Washington, or for Washington. And so I think who the president's, president is, is important, obviously. It's very important in foreign policy. It's very important in certain decisions. But the country as a whole can function quite well uh, because there's a private economy and then there are states and cities and so forth. Unlike Russia, just to underscore, where every governor is named by the Kremlin, every mayor can be removed at a whim's notice by the, by the Kremlin, and there's no such thing as local politics and local elections. That's, that's very optimistic. It's kind of nice to hear that. For, like maybe we're focusing on the places we've traditionally looked for to be the linchpin or the keystone in the politics. Maybe we don't need to worry about them No, I think as we much. do when it comes to foreign policy. We do when it comes to using foreign countries like Ukraine to gain political leverage or to trade away or to undo NATO or to strike deals that may have serious long-term consequences or to look at probably the number one uh, world issue, climate change, uh, that is precisely where Washington has to be on a, on a global level has to be playing that role because California can do whatever it can do, but it is one state out of 50 and it, and it can't implement international policy. It can implement domestic policy, but it can't implement international policy. And so, yes, Washington's very important. I just wanted to put it in perspective and say that the, 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 the world's not coming to an end yet. We have various resilient forms by which we can, uh, we can uh, respond. But I think 
you know, what's the first thing that, that, that Trump does after being acquitted? He opens up uh, Utah's parks to drilling oil and, and grazing. I mean, maybe as a specific insult to Romney, I'm not sure whether that was intended that way. But the point is that, yes, there's a, there's a battle going on here, and that battle is going to be playing out throughout 2020, and, and one hopes in November that, that somehow we will come out of it okay. But all I'm saying in answer to your idea of institutions, there are institutions that, that are functioning, you know, our free press, however many times it's accused of being fake news, no one has closed down the Washington Post, no one has closed down the New York Times. They are protected by rule of law, by courts, by precedent, by, and so, by the Constitution for that matter, of the First Amendment. So I think those things are there, and I think they will help us ride out this particular crisis. So pivoting towards the place where the breakdown is felt most keenly in international relations, how do you see American and Ukrainian relationship, the relationship between America and Ukraine going forward well, in the wake of the recent I, I would start a little bit higher up and say that what I think is deeply missing right now is any articulated foreign policy strategy. You know, whatever else one can say, uh, pluses, minuses, every preceding president, and I worked in several administrations, so I know it very well firsthand, had a foreign policy that was identifiable, that was often reiterated, that was presented in the State of the Union, uh, that was articulated. Uh, you can look at Bush's freedom agenda, I'm thinking of, of Bush, Bush Jr. You could look at Obama's pivot to Asia or turn to Africa, or uh, you could look at Clinton's sort of very, very uh, well-funded and aggressive, we need more democracies because that is the only way we're going to have peace and security. There were overarching strategic goals worked out by very, very smart staff and State Department, NSC and elsewhere. And the presidents, to the best of their abilities, tried to articulate that in various public fora. We don't have any identifiable strategy. I would be hard put to tell you what is our strategy other than the latest tweet, which is not a strategy, of course, uh, regarding China, regarding North Korea, regarding uh, Russia, for that matter, regarding Ukraine. So on one hand, uh, Ukraine is, some of it is continuation of Obama policy. So we have the sanctions in place. Well, that's a continuation, but that's not a strategy. That's a means towards them. What is the, what is the mean, where do we, what do we want to accomplish by having sanctions on Russia? I don't know. We, we want it to be our friend. Do we want to work together on the Arctic? Do we want to be uh, adversaries and admit to that? We have, I have no idea. And I would say that anyone looking at this would be hard pressed to come up with any cogent description of what it is that we have. So if that's the case, our policy toward Ukraine is totally up in the air. Uh, we had a policy that was a continuation of Obama fighting corruption, working on developing a democracy. I think Ukraine has made major strides in that direction. The election of Zelensky was a, certainly a positive step. But then it's totally undercut by using them as a as a very cynical pawn in, in getting reelected. So that relationship is, is pretty much um, at a dead end, or at least at a, at a, at a standstill. And so it's hard to, to, to determine what it is that we want to accomplish and what kind of world. Short of Bannon's world, Steve Bannon's world, which is very much everyone, it's a dog-eat-dog -dog world. And if that's what the direction, that's going to be a very dangerous one. What is the Ukrainian response? What are the, how have they been feeling? I feel like that's an important piece in this puzzle that's kind of been left out, is how they're responding to our use of I them think, in this way. I think they've played it extremely well. They didn't do what they were asked to do. They didn't come up with any dirt artificial on, on the Bidens. But they also didn't make a, a big point of... of, of 
siding with the Democrats. They tried to kind of say, we don't want to be part of your internal political. Uh, they recently had a meeting with uh, Secretary of State Pompeo. I don't know what the readout of that is, but there must have been some. Uh, they have just recently, I think, uh, named uh, an ambassador. I don't know if that person has been confirmed or not. Uh, so it's probably on kind of an automatic pilot, you know, kind of whatever things were happening, they just sort of continue program by program, but no particular vision as to, as to where they would fit into the grander. They desperately want to be part of Europe. They desperately want to be part of, ideally part of EU, ideally part of NATO. Uh, I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon for a number of reasons. Uh, economic, they have uh, the Donbass uh, region where the insurgents are fighting means that the borders are not, and the Crimea, in addition, means that borders are not set. And I believe that for NATO membership, you have to have uh, agreed upon borders. If you don't have agreed upon borders, then obviously, how can you go into an alliance which is going to protect those borders if you can't fully define them and have them accepted internationally? So I think that uh, that it's sort of caught between a country that uh, wants to be part of the West, but is being rebuffed uh, in many ways, rebuffed by by uh, the U.S. for very sort of personal and tawdry reasons. Not to meet with the president of a, you know, a large country, the largest country in Europe, for that matter. Geography-wise, it's bigger than, than anyone. Uh, it has 55 or whatever, 45, 46 million people. So it's a fairly large-sized country. Uh, just because they wouldn't, you know, fulfill your your uh, uh, deals uh, in terms of, of election, uh, uh, you know, negative uh, information is is really, you know, it's, it's, it's horrible. So long-term, you're critical of U.S. policy towards Ukraine? I believe that the best thing we could do is form close relations with those parts of the former Soviet Union that desperately want to have close relations. And the two that come to mind are Georgia and Ukraine. Uh, they seek that relationship. They want that relationship. They're open to that relationship. Uh, the Baltic states already having being part of Europe, EU don't, don't need quite that same coddling. But Georgia and Ukraine do. And I think it's it would be one of the ways. You know, there's a famous statement by Zbigniew Brzezinski, who recently passed away, he said, Russia and Ukraine together form an empire. Russia without Ukraine makes Russia a nation state. And, and I think that that's really a, the nub for Russia. It, it, it has this nostalgia for being an empire. It sees its former colonies as part of that empire. And uh, part of Putin's strategy is to somehow recreate at least de facto, if not de jure, but at least de facto, the Soviet Russian Empire. And so uh, letting these countries or allowing them or encouraging them to gain their independence would be a way of stopping decolonizing. I mean, I have to realize that Russia today, or was until 1991, the last major European empire. And it's the last to decolonize. And it decolonized in a very sudden way in 1991 when the whole place fell apart. And age-old colonies became individual separate countries overnight. And that's always a difficult process. It's a difficult process in Africa. It's a difficult process in Asia. It was no less a difficult process in the Soviet Union or in Russia, especially since the colonies were contiguous to the mother country. So in the case of Africa and Asia, you had colonies that were thousands of miles away. So their sense of identity and their sense of separateness was much easier for people to comprehend. When your colonies are contiguous to your country and the borders are artificial anyway, mostly drawn by Stalin in the 1920s to give the appearance of an international Soviet Union, you have a lot of contentious issues, a lot of unresolved problems. And so the breakup of the Russian Empire, the Soviet Russian Empire, is one that's still playing out. It's, it's going to be playing out probably for a while because it, it, empires always crumble over a period of time, but especially ones that are so unique in the way that they were formed.
So what in that world of late decolonization, what do you, what would be your, if you would have a dream package of American policies and plans towards these new nations or newly born, reborn nations, what would your agenda well, for I, this I be? I would go back, frankly, it's not that hard to do. I would go back to essentially what was set in motion in 1990, 91, when the Soviet Union was falling apart, which is uh, working individually with Kazakhstan or Kyrgyzstan or Tajikistan, having a bilateral relationship and helping them enter into international community as, as viable members. Uh, and that would involve country-to-country trade, that would involve educational exchanges, that would involve Americans going and learning more. I mean, the Peace Corps still operates in a lot of these places, and that's a wonderful way for Americans to go and spend some time in Kazakhstan or Kyrgyzstan. The people want to learn English, they want to be part. I mean, if you go to those countries, you realize that they feel the dominance of Russia and Russians because they're next door, because they are 10 times as big, because they are more powerful, because they have more money. But if you talk, we had Central Asian journalists here on campus, and we will again later this semester, another group is coming. Uh, You talk to them, they want to be part of the modern world. And they don't want to be part of the modern world through Moscow. They want to be part of it directly to any, any place on the globe. And they feel that they're very much still colonized. They're colonized language-wise and business-wise. As one of our Central Asian journalists told us, if you don't know Russian well, you won't succeed in business because business is run in the Russian language in all those places. Now, they all know Russian. That's not a problem. But their vision of their future is different. So Kazakhstan is planning to introduce the Latin alphabet rather and get away from the Cyrillic alphabet in terms of writing their language. That's really interesting. Because the Cyrillic alphabet was imposed by the colonial power on these people and said, you, speaking a Turkic language, must write in Cyrillic letters. Uh, they want to say we will be part of the modern world if we write in Latin letters. It doesn't matter what letter you, how you indicate the sound. You could write any language in any alphabet. But uh, to them, it would be breaking away from that colonial past. So I think... You know, you have to sort of see those countries in that context. And then the strategy really becomes, in a sense, what we've been doing, I think, all along. I mean, what what has been, we could do it better, we can maybe, you know, spend more time. But I think it's, we, for example, the United States, this is in the Clinton administration, helped set up the American University of Central Asia. It's a very interesting institution. Uh... USAID gave money, Soros gave money, other organizations. It's an English language mostly taught by American professors in English for Central Asians who want to learn English but can't afford to come to the United States to study. And it's become part of their sort of sense of being part of the modern world. So they don't have to go to a Russian university. They can go to an American university on their own territory. Uh, those are the kind, this is a small example, but that's the kind right. of way in which we should be engaging them. What worries me, to come back to the Trump uh, problem, what worries me is this kind of withdrawal from and sense, and this is the Bannon vision, that we should not be sort of part of the modern world. We should somehow have a fortress of the United States. We shouldn't let any immigrants in. We shouldn't deal with, with the rest of the world. We kind of hunker down and, and have this, this sort of aggressive transactional policy by which we gain certain benefits in terms of trade and use our leverage to, without realizing that uh, that's very short-sighted, but beyond that, that's not a way to, that the world will be far better off and far better, healthier and wealthier if there's greater integration rather than less. So the the... the I don't think personally, this is my personal view, that Trump really understands intellectually, but I think he has fed this sort of fortress notion that, that appeals to a certain core base here without understanding that the prosperity of the United States as well as the prosperity of the world will be far more likely 
in a more integrated world rather than in a world where everyone is sort of fighting everyone else uh, and and sort of sees a zero-sum game. I gain, you lose, and that kind of thing. Right. And I can also see that going down a path where you may start out everyone to themselves, and we compete only within economic ways, but where do you draw the line? If, if I gain, you lose by me annexing your provinces or, you know, and replacing not, your regime. And, and, and not caring. In other words, it also goes very much against the grain, and this is a bigger subject, but the idea that there are certain universal rights, universal principles that we should all somehow adhere to. If you take the the fortress notion to its extreme, then if another country wants to exterminate half its population, that's none of our business. And then you go down that very dangerous path where just because a person happens to be on one or another side of a, of a border, that person's life could be totally extinguished and, and, and we're just going to sit back and, and, and smile and say that's none of our business. Now, there's a lot of middle ground here, but, but you, you, by taking that approach, you are going back to a much more cruel world from the vision that was enshrined after World War II in the creation of the UN is precisely we will never go back to that. There is such a thing as a universal declaration of human rights. So there are rights that extend to everyone, no matter what their government may or may not think or do. And, and I think this is what Putin doesn't like. I think Trump doesn't like it because someone whispered to him that it's not in his interests. I think there are plenty of probably poorly educated Americans who don't understand this at all uh, and just don't like immigrants. And so that all kind of becomes an emotional issue rather than an intellectual issue. But I think it's a very dangerous way to go because you're, you're, you're going down the path of you know, potential genocides, potential all kinds of problems that will emerge. And you don't have any place to adjudicate it. There's no central place within which those things could be addressed. So I think that's a, that's a very dangerous, dangerous way. And it goes against the whole liberal world order that was created out of World War II, which, you know, may have functioned with, with its own problems, but, but it was seen as creating a world order within which those kinds of crimes would not take place. Or if they took place, they would be minimized and they would be punished somehow. So moving on a little bit, but still related, um, not saying that cruelty and uh, brutal worldviews are partisan issues, but it does seem that the easiest way for America to change course on that lies not with the Republican Party, but with the Democratic Party at the moment. And among the candidates, do you see that being the trajectory? Do you think that's important enough in the Democratic message to actually impact American foreign policy? Well, you know, it's hard, as you said earlier, you know, right now candidates are trying to come up with their one-liners that will somehow attract uh, people who have a passing interest in, in world politics. So it's hard to attribute to any one of them a deeper vision of the world at this point. But I think there is a, a um, isolationist trend in the Democratic Party as well, which I think is, 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 is dangerous for other reasons. I, I'm not uh, thrilled by by what I hear uh, Congressman and then Senator uh, Sanders at times sounds very isolationist. There are others who echo kind of, uh, we don't want to be involved in any issue outside. Well, we don't want to be involved maybe militarily, but we need to be involved diplomatically or we need to be involved through international organizations or there are many ways in which you can be involved. Uh, pulling back from that would be very dangerous. Uh, I think that trust in international institutions is something that my sense is the Republicans are hammering that somehow it's un-American to be part of international organizations. It's, it's un-American to be in any way tied down by international agreements without realizing that that's the only way we have 
of positively impacting the world without use of military means. Uh, that, that there is a tremendous need to strengthen international organizations because you're not going to deal with uh, anything from the coronavirus to the Arctic to climate change to any number of other issues, nuclear weapons. Nuclear weapons require international regulating bodies that we obviously have trust in and are part of and contribute to and, and are involved in those, those international bodies. And the international bodies, uh, I mean, rather than, there was a, it's a curiosity, it came from the uh, Secretary of Defense, but I remember Robert Gates, the Secretary of Defense, saying that, you know, for every dollar put into diplomacy and international education, international development, is several dollars fewer we will need to spend on the military. I mean, there's, there's a tremendous amount that can be done to ease international problems and solve them without sending troops and without being involved militarily. Uh, it may not be the only way, but it's a, and that has been very much degraded in this administration and really, in, in, to be very fair, has been degraded over the, over the past 10, 15 years. I mean, if you look at monies going into, they're, they're pennies compared to the U.S. government budget, but they have been stripped from USIA, which used to be an agency where I worked, United States Information Agency, was dissolved in the 90s under Clinton because that was the peace dividend, although it brought next to nothing in terms of, of monetary savings. State Department has fewer foreign service officers, fewer diplomats today than it did probably 30 years ago, which is in a complex world, you would think you want to invest more in those kinds of means. So I think that uh, I would like to see uh, in the 2020 election debates precisely those kinds of questions being raised and uh, visions of how you can both be involved and stay out of war. The two can be done together. Or minimize, minimize any kind of military operation and, and, and strengthen ways in which you can do it. So we withdrew from the Iran nuclear deal. Maybe, maybe it wasn't perfect. I, I, I don't know that details. But it was a way of controlling nuclear uh, buildup in Iran that now we have no control over, and it's kind of, it's only going to get worse. It's not going to get better without that involvement. And I think that's kind of the direction I see. Putin doesn't like international agreements, international institutions. Trump doesn't like international institutions. And other mini authoritarian figures don't like it either. So they all want kind of a doggy dog world for reasons that I think are going to be very dangerous. Well, that's what I worry most about is that, I mean, Trump is. He's laying the groundwork for smarter people who have these same ideologies to come along later and do the same thing better. And, and I think they're very dangerous ones. They're, they're, they're ones that, um, um, you know, kind of lead us in, 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 in ways that we haven't gone and in ways that I think will be destabilizing for the world and certainly will not solve the problems that, you know, your generations are facing. I've been reading up on the Arctic, and that has 30% or something of, of world fossil fuels. And I can assure you there are plenty of companies in Russia in particular that would like to tap into it. How are you going to deal with Arctic that belongs to, well, belongs to the whole world, but legally belongs to four countries, or at least four countries? Russia has already gone to the core of it and planted its titanium flag on the on the on the sea. Do they really the do seabed. that? Yes, they have. Uh, I think it was more of a gesture how, how they have a submersible that can go to some unbelievable depth. Gestures are important. Yeah, the gesture is important, and they have it planted. Um, so I think that just taking the Arctic as one example, taking you know everyone's now coronavirus, all these things, epidemics, health is an international issue. It's one that spans borders immediately. If you don't have well-functioning international organizations within which the U.S. plays a role, contributes money, and plays a role and is part of that, then we're going to suffer as a country, but then the world's going to be, and the poor parts of the world can be even worse off. The other question we have not touched, and that is traditionally, 
bipartisan, not a partisan issue, bipartisan, there has been a concern in the United States that we have an obligation toward poor, less privileged parts of the world. I mean, just to go back 15 years or so, George Bush's PEPFAR uh, initiative in Africa for fighting AIDS was a major billion-dollar effort that the Republican administration put forth with obviously bipartisan support. I see. In other words, it was considered American. Right. It didn't belong to one party, didn't belong to the other party. It was just considered what, what you do and, and, and you have programs and you're involved. Some do more, some do less, but, but you, you address those issues, you address those. Uh, I know the Obama administration did a lot with Africa, lots of programs in education and involvement and leadership and women and children and so forth. Perfectly fine. You expect to do that. But if you go back to a Republican administration, you didn't have one that turned away from that either. There's plenty of programs in the Bush administration, USAID budget, that, that dealt with, with, with those issues. And if you go back f- further to Clinton, you had that in Clinton administration, you had that earlier in Bush. So you, now what we face is a very stark, stark cutting off of something that has been traditionally part of the United States a sense of obligation and some moral expectation of working with the extreme poverty areas of the world. I mean, if you look at what USAID has done over the years, it has saved people from starvation. It has helped people in terms when storms come. You know, when tidal, when that tsunami hit in 2005, the U.S. was there. The U.S. was there with food. The U.S. was there with help. The U.S. was there with, as it should be. Right. And there is a sense of a turning away or leaving it to volunteers to do whatever, you know. But that's, that's not a serious, you know, scale, uh, scaled up uh, way of responding. And so if this trend continues, if we're sort of going down this path of isolationism, those kinds of efforts will no longer be front and central, and, and they certainly will no longer be a way in which the world sees the United States. Now, if you travel around the world, I would say people have, have traditionally had you know, different attitudes toward the U.S. Uh, most consider US, Americans sort of stupid, but there's been respect, and I'm serious, there's been respect for the U.S. commitment to those kinds of things. You know, the U.S. has stepped up every crisis, every issue. There's been and I'm not sure that's going to happen. And ideally, of course, it should happen together with other countries. So it's a united effort. I think what's going to be most important uh, going forward, of course, is whether or not this is a one-off or whether there are policies set in place that will be continued by others. And I think that's kind of what, what where the core is going to be. Uh, if this is a four-year fluke, well, then that passes and life goes on. As I said, not that many things, though, in fairness, have really dramatically changed. Some have, uh, probably more than I would like to see, but some things have just continued because they haven't gotten around to actually disassembling certain things. But I've seen signs that that may very well accelerate if, if... Trump is reelected for another four years. Don't know, and it's the the acquittal part is going to make a lot of noise this week. So we'll we'll see how that. I don't think it's a surprise to anyone, but I think that nonetheless will resonate. And I think for a lot of people around the world, they will really take it as some kind of total absolute exoneration, which in the American context it's not. Uh, but I think for the world that simplifies politics and sees things much more black and white, uh, it will be just kind of, uh, oh, well, everything's perfectly fine. But you have to realize that the whole idea of impeachment uh, does not sit well with authoritarian rulers because they look at that and say, well, you know, it could be me, except authoritarian rulers will either be dead or in jail. Usually they're not going to be allowed to just go off and, 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 and retire and live a good life. Uh, so I think for them, this whole idea of anything upsetting the apple cart of any sort, with whether it's through demonstrations, whether it's through 
rule of law procedures is viewed negatively. And, and then the, Russia doesn't have a word for impeachment, so they just use impeachment. There's no, there's no concept of it in the language. It doesn't exist. There's no concept of impeachment in Russian episode title. With one of the main defenses of Trump's legal team being, well, let the people decide in the election, if we're wondering about whether or not it should, you know, impeachment should be something even conducted by juries in this sense, the jury being the American people. They're using this less than I saw in the Merrick Garland case of, you know, well, let the people decide who gets to mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. elect the Supreme Court justice. It, was, it didn't seem as popular of an of a angle on impeachment. Well, I think that most authoritarian leaders don't want people to decide either. It's not so much, as they say, who votes, it's who counts the votes and how they count the votes. I mean, most countries have elections. Very few countries have real elections. Now, Ukraine did have a real election. I think what, what marks the difference between Russia and Ukraine, and I've been to both many, many times, Ukraine is so much freer, and Ukraine wants to be a real democracy, and it has real elections and real transfer of power. Russia has never had. It did have a real election in 1996 because the communists might come in, and that was a flawed but an interesting election because there was real battle between Yeltsin and the communists in 1996. Post-1996, there are no real elections. They are all staged events where the person who's going to be elected has all the time in the world on media never is debated, never is criticized, and is, you know, uh, acknowledged at the end of this process. And you have what's called the loyal opposition that knows that their job is to lose, and their job is never really to criticize the main leader, but to mouth enough different opinions so that it looks like there is some form of democracy, but it is absolutely no democracy and there's absolutely no real election. And so that's why everyone worries. Plus, authoritarian regimes have no real succession set in in store. No one knows what's going to happen in 2024. And that's why Putin is playing around with all of these changes in the Constitution, because there is no prescribed way of doing anything. And the prescribed way is one that they wouldn't want. The prescribed way is we'll have elections. Well, if you don't have parties and you don't have a tradition and you don't have debates, you're not going to have real elections either. Are there ways to get those traditions encouraged? I know oh, that's we, been a big part of your work. We tried. I think uh, I didn't personally, wasn't involved in the election part of it, but I think there were people who wanted it. I think people who s- strive to have them. I think it happens on very local levels. You know, there were demonstrations in Russia this past summer really about opening up Moscow council elections to free, to independent people. And they didn't even want to do that. They didn't even want to have on a city council people elected who had not been vetted by this government. So if you're fighting on that level and you're not winning where you can get your city council, they're dealing with sewage system and garbage collection and parks and you know traffic. I mean, they're not dealing with, with the real core of, of how the country's run, but even there... They don't want voices that are not subservient to the mayor, and the mayor is subservient to the president of the country. It's that kind of vertical power that that they see as their core of stability. And so what they tell their people, look how stable things are here, look how chaotic they are in the UK with Brexit or the United States with Trump and impeachment. Do you want to be like that? Do you want that kind of chaos? Do you want all these people talking in Congress? No. We provide your security, we provide your continuity, stability, which is, of course, a lot of fake stuff, but that's really the line that they that they use. Right. They, in terms of resisting... The authorities. The, implement, the, the authorities. Yeah. The people did seem to be pushing for that? Well, I think people, people who don't like could try to leave. Some people fight it, but end up getting in jail or get, beat, get beaten up. And others just kind of go along with what they've always known. I mean, that's all you've known in life. There's no real reason for you to all of a sudden sit up and say, no, I don't want that anymore. It's just the way the way things are. And people live their private lives and they try to have their private existence. And 
leave politics alone. Yeah, I think the private existence of most people is missed by a lot of political thought and wondering which way. I think more people don't care than is no, given because credit. Because here people have so much freedom. You can post anything you want on social media. In Russia, for you better can't. or worse, you can't. You, if you post something from a, another source that is not vetted in the country, you could be subject to fines, arrest. Uh, that's how you live, and your social media is monitored, and you better know who you're reposting. You can be arrested for a repost. You could be arrested for posting something that goes against government policy. Any citizen. Any citizen in Russia is arrested for posting. I didn't realize how intense it was. My focus area is not Russia, so yeah. this is... But that's how tough it is. It wasn't that way 15 years ago. So right. It's not that now. I mean, there's a tremendous move in the last four or five years toward this kind of rigid authoritarian rule. Um, I would live there from 2008 to 2015. In 2008, you could do things that you couldn't do in 2015. It's just you could people could express the views publicly that they couldn't express after 2012. Publicly or on the internet. Same thing. Same they thing. They consider that public. Okay. Um, so you know that's that's the the reality, and and that's the person that Trump is putting forward as as, as his best buddy. Right. I, I wonder about the distinction between the Internet and, and in traditional public spaces, because the Internet at first especially was such a democratic institution that came in before a lot of rules about it in some instances. Uh, so that Russia was... has now instituted a system by which they monitor all sites. They will close sites. They will tell you you can't enter this site. Uh, they can turn off the Internet for the entire country should they wish to. Uh, they certainly monitor social media as to what you post and what you repost and what you say. My Russian friends are now very, very, very hesitant to post anything. Dr. McPomar, thank you very much for being on the podcast again. It's a pleasure to have you as always. Well, thank you very much. The views expressed on this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the show or the University of Texas. Please visit SlavXRadio.com for more information. Thank you for listening. The Slavic Connection is produced by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you. Thank you.